Ramble. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Bada bing, bada boo. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue, And the four of them... They were sitting in a small room. It was connected to the emergency room. So they're just waiting for doctors. It's been a very long day for every single one of them. It was well into the night. The storm is coming down heavy. The sound of the wind, the rain is pelting on the window glass so loudly. They thought it was hail. The sound starts getting louder and louder and it's more rapid. So a woman stands up. She looks outside the window and it's actually a hospital helicopter, probably airlifting someone to the hospital right now, saving a life. But Al, Al was upset by the noise. He started crying loudly. They're coming. They're coming to take us all. They're coming for the wicked and the evil. But they won't take the pure, the pure as snow. And he fell to his knees where the woman was sitting. And he said, I could never have done this to you. You're so pure and they're so bad. And I've been such a bad, bad boy. You are so pure. They're coming for the wicked. They're coming for the evil. They're coming. And she stood up and Al followed her frantic. And he keeps screaming, I've been a bad boy. I've been a very, very bad boy. Bad, bad boy. The things I've done, my birthday, oh, you're so pure, so pure, pure as snow. And me, I'm a fraud. Everything I do is a fraud. I'm, I'm a bad boy. You are so pure, pure as snow. Mommy, mommy, don't leave. Promise you'll never leave no matter what. Mommy, no matter what I've done, you're never going to leave me, right? Mommy, you can't leave me. Don't leave me. Mommy, don't leave. The woman was shocked. This man was her 50-year-old husband who was now begging on his knees, calling her mommy. And just a day ago, he was in his very fancy office seeing patient after patient because he was a psychiatrist. But now he was being admitted into the psych ward. And they couldn't help but wonder, did a patient do something to him? Did one of them drive him mad? As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there is a book called Masquerade by Lowell Koffel. I think I'm saying that right. Really great author. He actually wrote a book on Eddie Lee Sexton and his crimes, and both these books are incredibly well-written. As for Masquerade, there was a lot of focus on Jan, Al's wife, the woman that was, you know, listening to the helicopter. She becomes super important to the story, and it's just fascinating to see her side of things the whole book itself is thorough it's clearly incredibly well researched but it never dragged on it felt like every sentence was worth reading and there was just a lot of power in this book so i highly recommend it with that being said let's get into it the psychiatrist's breakdown i mean it was like any other thursday jan canty gets a call and this kind of changes the course of her life it was from her mother-in-law 
And she said, Jenny, something happened to our Alan. I don't know what. He won't talk, but he's calling for you. He's calling your name, Jenny. I just know that something terrible happened. You need to go to his office right now. Jen didn't understand. I mean, this is a normal Thursday. He should be at work seeing patients. What could have possibly happened? Did a patient have a psychotic breakdown and maybe attacked Al? <gasps> is that what happened? So she dials her husband's work phone. No answer. No answer. She called seven times before someone picked up, but it was only silence on the other end. Oh my God. Maybe someone did get her husband. She jumps into the car. She starts speeding over to his little office building. And the whole time she's praying to herself, trying to soothe herself. It's going to be okay. I'm going to walk in there. Everything's going to be a misunderstanding. Al's going to be sitting there seeing a patient and it's going to be okay. She rushes into the waiting room into his office and oh boy, she knew this was not good. Al was sitting in his chair and it almost looked like he was sinking into that chair. The chair was eating him up, swallowing him whole. His head was nearly touching the back of the wall. He was frozen stiff. But the look on his face, pure terror. Like he had seen not just a ghost, but maybe an entire family of ghosts, like a community of ghosts. Jan herself used to work at a university clinic and she was a psychologist too. But even then, she had never seen anyone in her entire life look so freaking horrified. So she's trying to remain calm for her husband. Al, honey, honey, what's wrong? He just stares off in front of him. It's like he didn't hear her. Al, sweetie, Al. And she's starting to panic. She's starting to show her nerves. And Al's mouth is slowly starting to move, but the tongue was moving around inside his mouth. She could see that. But not a single sound is coming out. Hello? Okay, okay, don't panic. Jan goes into save my husband, I'm a bad bis wife mode, okay? She takes control of the situation. She rushes out into the waiting room. There's two patients awkwardly sitting there waiting for their sessions. Hey, you come here too? That's cool, that's cool. So she explains to them, we're having a family emergency. The secretary is going to call you back as soon as possible. You got to skedaddle. So she rushes back into Al's office. She touches him. He's cold. He's sweating heavily. Okay, this is, this is not good. She's running through all the knowledge of potential situations she has. Is this a state of shock? No. Insulin rush? No, no, that doesn't make sense. What the hell is going on? So she's standing there running through every single symptom, every potential cause, and she can't think of an answer that fits perfectly. So she starts crying and she's scared and she's worried. And this is her husband. I mean, she can only be so clinical about it. And then it came to her. Oh my God, he's having a psychotic break. I mean, of course he is. Look at his schedule. He's overworked, over-caffeinated. I mean, his consumption with coffee alone has always been alarming. He has sleepless nights. He started working in the court system to do psych evaluations on criminals, on psychopaths, on sociopaths of sex offenders. This is not a normal thing for someone's mind. He can't his workload is finally catching up with him. He's been pushed over the edge. I need to get him to a hospital. I need to fix him. So this gives her the confidence that she needs because at least she knows now exactly what's going on with her husband. She starts talking to Al in a calm voice. Shh, it's okay, it's okay. Follow me, I'm gonna get you into the car and everything's gonna be okay. The first stop that they make is to Dr. Aaron Rutledge. This is a psychiatrist that Jan really respected. I believe he was a professor at one point where she was, um, she was getting her degree. And he just kind of sat there. Al sat there. He seemed a little bit more stable. But his responses, if he did respond, were no more than like a little nod of the head. He seemed severely withdrawn. So Jan and Dr. R, they try to secure a room for Al in the university hospital. But everything's booked. 
He would have to wait to be admitted through the ER. So Jan is optimistic and she's thinking 24 hours is nothing. This is my husband. I'm a psychologist. I can take him home. I can handle it. So she drives them back to their beautiful Tudor-style mansion, and Al did anything Jan wanted. She said, get out of the car. He did it. She said, get inside. He did it. Here, change these clothes. He did it. But something was off. I mean, it seemed like he was trying to act normal, and then he would just randomly burst into laughter at things she said. But Jan knew. Jan knew that he wasn't even understanding a single word coming out of her mouth. He didn't even know what was going on. It's like the guy was in mechanical, automatic mindset, just doing everything as he thinks it's supposed to be done, but he's not there. And randomly, she would see in the corner of her eye, he'd be sitting there, and there would be this look on his face where he would just look absolutely petrified. So this confirms in her head, he's having a psychotic break. I mean, his symptoms were textbook. Loss of touch with reality. Loss of touch with time, places, dates, faces, names. Sometimes the patient comes in and out of it, but it's still a psychotic break. She would need to keep him grounded and distracted until the next day. So she calls up her good friends, Celia and John Muir. She begs them, hey, can you get Al out of the house with me? Let's go on like a double dinner date. It'll be fun. We need to get his mind off of whatever he's thinking about. Then tomorrow, I'm going to get him admitted into the psych ward and everything will be good. We're going to fix him. So John drives to the Canty house, picks the couple up, and throughout the entire car ride, Al is in the passenger seat just mumbling away to himself. He would say random things like, I'm in over my head. I'm in over my head. The class corridor, the class corridor. And at one point, the car went over a speed bump and Al's shoulders jerked up and he was so frightened. He looked at Jan, who's in the back with his eyes wide. And he says, am I going to be okay? Yes, yes, you'll be fine, honey. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? I've been a bad boy. I'm a bad boy. Am I going to be okay? I've been a bad boy. I've been a bad boy. I'm a bad boy. And Jan was so confused. She had no idea what he was talking about. But everyone heard him sobbing, just hunched over in the passenger seat. Through the sobs, he would say things like, do you still love me, Jan? She would say, of course I do, honey. Do you still love me, Jan? Do you? Jan, please, you're so good. You're so good to me, Jan. Jan, you've never done anything wrong, and I'm so bad. I'm so bad. Am I going to be okay? Of course I love you, Al. You know I love you. You're going to be okay. Listen, I don't know if they made it to dinner. My best guess is that they did not. They went to the ER instead because Al was seen in the waiting room, and he was not enjoying it. He was avoiding eye contact with anyone and everyone. He seemed terrified. He sat there shaking. His whole body was cold to the touch. And at one point he's just silently sobbing. I mean, what could have possibly happened? Was this some sort of shared psychosis with another patient? Maybe, maybe he had said something to a patient or missed a session and the patient took their own life. And now Al felt responsible. And through the heaviness of that guilt, he felt paralyzed and he's breaking down and he feels like a bad boy. Maybe truly he was just overworked. The two couples are finally escorted into a small room in the ER, and Al's behavior is only getting stranger. He starts pacing around the room. Most of the time, it was with his shoulders hunched over like a small child. And then randomly, he would shoot up in attention. His whole body would be erect, and he would march in place like a soldier with his arms swinging mechanically. And Jan couldn't help herself. She was checking off the boxes in her head. Dilated pupils, rapid breathing, emotional, acute onset of, oh God... 
And then now remember, the helicopters are coming down. The storm is brewing. Al is getting up, sobbing loudly. They're coming to get us. They're coming to take the wicked and the evil. But Jan, not you. You're so pure. I could never have done this to you. I've been a bad boy, a very bad boy. And you're so pure, pure as snow. So Jan tries to calm him down. No, honey, you're not bad. You're just confused. But Al, he got on his knees and he started stroking her body with his palms. As you know how you would maybe like a pagan idol. I don't know. That's how everyone references this, right? But he would keep saying, I've been so bad and you're so pure, pure as snow, as pure as snow, as pure as snow, as pure as snow. It started to sound almost like this rhythmic chant. It was almost sexual in a way, the stroking of her body with his palms. And Jan is feeling incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly unnerved by this. I mean, this was out of nowhere. And Al started shouting, Mommy, you have to take care of me. You will, no matter what, no matter what, you will not leave me. Don't leave me, Mommy. He started calling her mommy. Yeah. Jan looks over to her friend Celia and she starts crying and she's like, he's so sick. I don't know what he's doing. I look at him and I don't even know him. So Celia looks at her husband and says, can you just be with Al? And she escorts Jan out of the room, leaving the two men in there. And this was just too distressing for Jan. And inside that room, alone with John, Al starts confessing all the ways he's been a bad boy. He starts rambling about a woman named Dawn. And how much she needed him. And how he just wanted to help her. Just wanted to fix her. She really needs me, but I haven't told Jan. I haven't told Jan. I haven't told Jan. Okay, well, either way, there was no way to tell Jan about what Al just told. You know, that's weird. How are you going to tell her about another woman named Dawn when you don't even know? Is this a patient? Is this, you know, something weird going on? What is he fixing about her? So they finally get Al admitted. He lays down on the bed. He decides he doesn't want to take off his shoes. He doesn't even want a blanket. He just kept saying, I don't want to stay here. I want to go home. I don't want to stay here. I want to go home. Jan tried to wipe his hair from his face. Sweetie, you've been working way too hard. Now you can finally get some rest and everything will be okay. So she leaves. And the talented psychiatrist is left at the psych ward as a patient himself. Ironically, it was Friday the 13th. So how did we get here? I mean, I know some of you may have guessed drugs, but he was never known to use drugs, which you're like, okay, well, a lot of people hide things, nor did the test come back positive. So we can rule out drugs to induce a psychotic break. Something else must have happened. The doctors are confused themselves. They kept asking Jan and Al's parents, has this ever happened before? I mean, it's highly unusual to have a psychotic break to this extent when someone is in their 50s. There's typically some sort of history. Jan shook her head. No, no, no. I mean, I've been married for him, married to him for a while and never, not once. I mean, this is so, this is so unusual. Gladys, Al's mom, she said, no, absolutely not. But she had lied, maybe unintentionally. Maybe she just didn't consider parts of Al's past to be important. Or maybe there were things in Al's past that she felt was better unknown. So should we take a dive head first into Al's upbringing? Because it all starts with his parents. They were very important people, not just in Al's life, but in the community and potentially in the nation. Gladys and Al Sr. were his parents, and Al Sr. worked for one of the first forensic psychology clinics in the nation. So it's safe to say that Al Sr. worked with psychopaths on a daily basis. Like, that's what his job title was. Like, he would just interview, quote-unquote, diagnosed psychopaths that were also criminals. Yeah, 
That's tough. He worked with the police to help catch these people. He helped courts testify when they had to put them away in prison. And Al Canty Sr. actually made a really good name for himself. He taught criminology to the Detroit Police Academy. Like he taught criminology to the police. He lectured them on the art of interrogation, the use of hypnosis, and polygraphs. He even briefly had a stint with the CIA to conduct experiments on sexual psychopaths. So he would hypnotize them and shoot them up with LSD and another drug called Truth Serum and try to fix them into not wanting to rape people or children. So, which by the way, I'm working on a whole episode on Truth Serum and it's, we're going to do a deep dive, but not right now. And because of all of that work, Al Sr. was best known for his works on sex crimes and sexual deviance. That's some heavy stuff. So during all of this, Gladys gets pregnant. And the two, they always wanted this big family with tons of kids just running around. But Gladys and pregnancy did not work well together at all. Like her full nine months of pregnancy, she was nauseous and exhausted to the point where her doctor was like, you might lose the baby. This is not normal. It was not an easy pregnancy. Not that any pregnancy is easy, I would like to imagine. So Al Canty Jr. is born as the only child. And his childhood was seemingly great. I mean, yeah, his dad worked all the time and he worked on some really dark, heavy things. But Al Sr. was amazing at compartmentalizing. He never brought his work home. And Gladys was happy to be a mom. She doted on her little baby, her only son. And when Al was old enough to go to school, Gladys devoted 18 years to the PTA. She even became the citywide president and statewide mental health chairman of the PTA. She did such amazing work at the PTA that she was voted on onto the Detroit school board, where she would serve 14 years and was even president of the school board twice. So the Canty family, I mean, they had an incredibly positive, admirable reputation in the community. So of course, Al is going to feel a little bit of pressure. I mean, he didn't know what he wanted to study, but it's pretty clear, even if his parents didn't tell him outright, you need to study psychology, it's pretty clear. It's, you know, he didn't really have a choice. So he graduates with a PhD in psychology from the University of Michigan. He sets up an office for himself in Fisher Building, which is like a Detroit landmark skyscraper. This was the it place for his office to be. Everybody knew where it was. Everybody knew Al Canty Jr. He was the therapist that everyone would recommend to each other, mainly because of how laid back he was. He hated putting up certificates and degrees all over his walls like the other therapists. He just felt like, what's the point? What's the point of intimidating my patients for no reason? Like, I'm trying to help them not make them feel uncomfortable. He always wanted to be called Al, not Dr. Canty. He would even open up about himself to patients to show that he could truly sympathize with them. So it's fascinating. Al Sr. and Al Jr., they're both in similar fields, but they work so differently. Al Sr. never brought his work home. He never internalized any of his work. He was amazing at what he does, but he never sat at home stressing about the feelings and emotions of these people that he was trying to quote unquote fix and help and cure. On the flip side, Al Jr. was emotionally invested in his work. He wanted to help people and it seemed like he cared about every single person that he worked with, which I imagine to be incredibly draining as a therapist. So people start worrying that it's taking a toll on him. I mean, but don't feel too bad. He was being compensated well for his work. He's probably making over half a million dollars a year, which is a whole lot of money. But Al seemed to everybody else that he wasn't driven by the money, but rather the passion. Again, don't get me wrong. He loves spending his money. Like he has like five cars and a nice house. 
Like you, he really liked his money. <laughs> it's weird. I can't five even. Five cars. Yeah, he had like five cars. The guy was really into cars, but then he really loved his Buick that he drove every day. So it's not like he had five Ferraris. He just really liked versatility, I guess. Mm. Variety. He also had this new project that he was working on in trying to help children with autism. And okay, well, project is a loose word. It was more of a psychological experiment. Where, um, let me explain. This is how Jan soon became Jan Canty. She found herself sitting in Dr. Canty's office in Fisher Building. So let's talk about Jan real quick. Jan had a pretty picturesque childhood growing up. Her dad had a well-paying job at Ford Motors. Jan's mom was a stay-at-home mom to watch three kids. And I think regardless of how much Jan's dad was making, it was not enough to support three kids through college. So Jen was devastated. She had spectacular grades, but she would not be going to university. This was during a time where most girls her age, in her socioeconomic status, after high school, they were just expected to find jobs as secretaries or marry someone. So Jen is depressed by that thought. She starts trying to live that horrid dream, but it's just not satisfying. So one summer, her friend, sensing her misery, tells her, hey, there's a psychologist who's looking for helpers in like this therapy program for children with autism. It's, it's a little off the wall, but he's going to produce these emotionally charged plays and it's going to bring emotions out of specific children who are closed off and kind of in this shell. It's, it's more like a psychological experiment, if I'm being honest, but you get to help kids. You know, that doesn't that sound more fulfilling than this office job? So Jan is intrigued. I mean, she wanted to do something meaningful. This sounded like that. So she joins the other six young women who regularly practice skits in a room on another floor of the Fisher office building. Now, each of these women practice in different rooms, and sometimes I would pop in to watch them rehearse. As it turns out, Jan sucked. I mean, she was horrible. She was literally the worst skit reader. She couldn't even memorize her lines. She couldn't even read them with passion. Like, she just was not. She's an amazing person, incredibly intelligent, but she was just not made for this life. But Al never told her that. He's a therapist. He starts gently steering her into office work instead, you know, because he's paying her. So he's like, oh, why don't you help me work on the book that I'm writing on the project? It's going to be called Therapeutic Peers. Instead of letting her go and firing her, he just found something else for her to do. That's just kind of how Al was. He, he never believed in telling someone that they sucked at something or that they should think of doing other things. He would just steer them in that direction. Now, I don't know if Jan noticed that, or maybe she just noticed how comforting and sweet he was because she was immediately drawn to him. He was bright, creative, kind, so charismatic, and his memory Oh my God, his memory just amazed her. He never needed notes for anything. He remembered like every single little thing. And if she ever made a mistake, he would lecture her about it. No, not about the mistake, but he would lecture her on the importance of not expecting perfection from yourself. Wow. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but like kind of exhausting too. <laughs> like, I don't know what's more exhausting, being on the receiving end of that or being on the giving end of that. I feel like I'd be like, bro, calm down. I'm just mad at myself. Let me be for a second. <laughs> Leave me alone. I don't need this motivational talk right now. So while helping Dr. Al write this book, Jan feels comfortable enough to give him suggestions on certain chapters. I mean, she was nervous. Is he going to be mad that a low-level secretary is challenging his writing? But he would turn around and said, you know, Jan, you're really college material. You know that, right? She would blush and he always just made her feel good about herself. And after nine months on the job, working with this sexual tension, 40-year-old Al asks out 22-year-old Jan and she says yes. 
So 20 year age gap. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, it's illegal. And at least she's not 18 and he wasn't waiting for her to be legal. <laughs> That's really alarming. But it is a pretty big age gap. And there's a lot of things you got to think about in that, you know. To be fair, he didn't look over 30 years old. That's what people said. And Jan decided, you know what? Why, why not? Age isn't everything. So they go on their first date. And Jan has second thoughts. She's like, I'm in over my head. He took her to a restaurant overlooking a lake. She looked at all the other patrons. They were impeccably dressed. She she found, she felt like she was in the wrong place. She saw the prices on the menu and she almost passed out. She had never dined at a restaurant where you don't have to pay first at like a front cash register. Even the drinks that they ordered were so fancy, like these fancy cocktails that were disgusting. She said it was absolutely gross. She hated it. She gagged in the bathroom for how unaccustomed to the food that she was. And she felt so shitty about it. She felt like she was throwing money down the toilet when she threw up. But to her surprise, even knowing all of this, Al asked her out again. And they were in love. Jan said sometimes she would accidentally lock her keys inside her car. Al would drive 50 minutes to drop off her spare set of keys and he would calm her down. It's okay. We all make mistakes. Here, I brought you your keys. No big deal. The world is fine. And I'll see you tonight. It's like fine the first time. <laughs> like if you did that the first time, I'd be like, hey, it's okay. See you tonight. You did this the second time. I'm like, hey, it's, um, it's something. See you tonight. Third time. Hey, this is dumb. <laughs> see you tonight. <laughs> so he even called her Jan Jan. Oh yeah, Jan Jan. That was his nickname for her. Sure, he was 20 years older than her, but he just had this golden retriever energy that she was drawn to. Even when Jan asked about his first wife, Maggie, Al sat there and uh, he had no bad words to say about his ex-wife, not one. He said that he still admired her intelligence and she was devoted to her career, which he respected. But after nine years together, they just weren't compatible. And Jan was shocked. This was her first time hearing a man not call his ex-wife crazy. <laughs> she was like, wow, this is this is refreshing. <laughs> and the longer that they dated, the more Al nudged Jan into going into college. So she goes and she studies psychology and Al supported her through it all. Mentally, emotionally, physically, financially. And Jan knew this was the man for her. I mean, sure, she knew that one day, one day he's going to pass before she does. And she's going to be older and all alone. But she figured that 30 years with Al was worth it, even if it meant being alone for the rest of her life. So one summer morning, she knew that Al would never pressure her into committing, knowing their age difference. So she decided, while eating breakfast one day, to propose. She said, Al, what do you think about being married? And he looked at her speechless and excited and she took out a calendar, picked up her fork, closed her eyes and blindly stabbed a page. She said, let's get married September 28th. And he said, yeah, so sounds good to me. But Jen, one day, you know, I want you to really think about it. One day, Jen, Jen, you will be alone. And if that day happens, given the age difference, please, I want you to remarry. I don't ever want you to be alone because of me, please. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you're the best guy I ever met. Let's get married. So the two of them, they start immediately house hunting in affluent Wayne County. They found a Tudor style house and it was big enough for Al to even have a home office and a five car garage for Al's multiple cars. So after marrying Jan, it seemed like all was going well in Al's life. He was done with his project. He sent the tapes to 10 programs across the country to be field tested on children with autism. 
He said he found satisfaction in the fact that the work was continuing without his help. He published his book, Therapeutic Peers, gave a few lectures on it, and moved on. And that was Al. He would devote his life to something, and when he felt the impact was made, he would just kind of move on. But I'm really glad he moved on because his project was just plain creepy. I mean, the plays all featured super villainous young women and evil men. Like, there were princesses that would direct the murder of their own husbands. There was another one about a psychotic ballerina. And like everybody was dying in the plays, it was probably worse than Hunger Games or even Game of Thrones. But he was like, yeah, let's let's show it to children. It was intense. It was really intense. <laughs> what? So Jan, she's trying to be a psychologist and she's happy. She would always tell her mom, I just hope one day I can be half as good of a psychologist that Al is. I think I'd be satisfied then. And she plunged herself into her studies. So they're both super busy. Al's booking like 60 hours of clinical work and therapy. Outside of that, he still has admin work. He dabbles in forensic works in the courts. He supervises fellow studying psychologists. I mean, he was truly defining workaholism. So Jan's worried about him working himself to death. She just wanted to make sure that he didn't die anytime soon. So Al, he just would not cut back. He was addicted to it. And when he would come home, he wanted to spend time with Jan, talking about interesting topics in their fields. They had healthy debates. They daydreamed. Jan said Al knew how to make life fun, even when it wasn't. I mean, is he just the perfect guy? A man who just knows so much about human emotion that he mastered his emotions and the ability to cater to other people's emotions? That's is what that it what, sounds like. That's what it sounds like, Right. But I'm sure everybody has their issues, even therapists. For one, Al liked to help people a bit too much. Some might argue strongly that's why he married Jan. I mean, think about it. A younger woman with no financial stability, he would help elevate her status, support her through college, something that she could only dream of doing. And uh, this is something that most people wouldn't say until you see the full picture. So you were like, okay, this is a little harsh, Stephanie, but just wait. It's almost like Al kind of, needed to feel needed to almost feel authority like he was like the big daddy of the duo when dating it said that al had a trend whether knowingly or not he was drawn to women who had no financial standing or resources of their own he liked people that weren't that sophisticated or established yet he wanted to feel admired he wanted to make them feel like oh he's doing this for them so what happens when Jan becomes less helpless? With time, she's going to get experience and confidence and education. She's going to grow into a more independent, educated woman. What happens then? She said that she noticed Al being less interested in her. Al suddenly stopped wanting to go out with her and her friends. He starts canceling their lunch dates. He even started becoming short with her, like a little snappy. She said she started to just feel like another patient. He was fitting into the schedule rather than his wife. Their sex life was like non-existent. They stopped sharing dinner together. Jan confronted him and was like, are you just not into me anymore? Are you gambling? Are you hiding something? Is there another woman? And he'd say, no, of course not. Don't be crazy, Jan. My schedule's just been hectic, that's all. Well, that was a lie. In fact, there was another woman. There were many other women. What? It's clear to say nobody close to Al Canty knew what he was doing during his lunch breaks. I mean, what do you think a psychiatrist is doing? Maybe he's going over his notes. Maybe his guilty pleasure is watching trash reality TV. Maybe he goes out into the parking lot and chain smokes cigarettes. But not Al. Al went to Cass Corridor. So this area was infamous for the place to go if you want to spend time with a sex worker. It's a bit of a sex work hotspot. And Al was familiar with it. He loved young women with dark hair parted down the middle. He would drive and drive and drive until he found his type. He would ask her to come in for a half and half, which is a uh, half 
fellatio than intercourse, half and half, and he would pay generously, more than her asking rate. He would even take her to a nice hotel. Most people just did it in the car. This was Al's thing. This is what got him through his grueling 16-hour workdays. This is what gave him the motivation to work harder, to reset so he could finish the rest of his day, giving his all to his patients. If his wife asked, why did you go to Cass Corridor? Like, it's dangerous over there. You know that. He'd say, oh, I, I get a really good uh, Chinese place called Chung's. my favorite. There was no stopping Al. It was like, it was like this whole brick thing. Okay, not him being all bricked up during lunchtime, which I guess is true, but he really liked to collect bricks. It's a little strange. I wonder if there's a huge community of brick collectors that I'm just unknowingly offending right now, so I'm sorry, but he would just go around and collect bricks from vacant lots and add them to his brick collection. Yeah, I guess it's uh, definitely a more affordable collect <laughs> yeah. collecting hobby, yeah. Then his car collection, yeah. So he would normally go to dangerous areas to get new bricks because you think you can walk into Beverly Hills and just freaking pick up a laying around brick? Like you're going to abandoned areas where you can take a brick without someone calling the cops on you. So it's just, it was also dangerous considering the fact that Al is this older man now heading into his 50s. He loved to carry cash. I mean, the way he dressed, he stuck out like a sore thumb. He would stick out like a sore thumb anywhere. He was dressed super proper, like exactly how you would imagine a psychiatrist. You're like, that guy is a little weird. (laughs) When I was in high school, I had this ritual every day after coming home from school. I would grab a salty snack, sit down, watch my favorite mystery drama on TV. And recently I discovered the adult version of that, which at the end of the workday, I grab salt and vinegar chips, snuggle up on the couch, and I play June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden objects mystery game that makes me feel like I'm living inside of a mystery TV show that is very immersive. You play as Detective June Parker, and you just found out that your sister and husband were murdered. This is a fictional story. So you fly from London to New York to investigate, but the clues are just not adding up. So you get to go through these series of scenes from the mansion living room to a lavish garden to a 1920s style New York cafe. In each room, you have to find hidden objects that help you solve the mystery of your sister's death. And in the meantime, a whole lot of unexpected just scandalous twists are going to happen. There's family secrets, danger, there's romance. I love traveling all over the world with June. Currently, I'm exploring Paris in the 1920s. Because the game is set in the 1920s, it just has the most aesthetic game design ever, and it's so cozy. Whenever I need a break from the suspense, I can pause the story and head over to my private island. Yeah, they give you a private island and you get to customize it however you want for you. I love cottage core mixed with that old money vibe with a huge mansion and a luxurious garden and even like this train rail. June's journey is the best way to unwind at the end of a long day or just to take a break in the middle of the day when I feel overwhelmed. I can escape all of my problems and turn into Detective June. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
So Jan, she tries to ignore it, and she focuses on her power of planning his 50th birthday. She wanted it to be special. It says 5-0-50. But life had other plans. Jan gets sick around that time with mono, and it was bad. Now Jan, she's not the type of person that would lay around. She believes that she could work through her sickness. She believes that she should not be hanging out in bed unless she was physically dying. So she pushes it off and pushes it off and works through it. And she she gets sick for three months. And it was only getting worse. Her doctor told her, go get rest or you're going to be hospitalized for a very long time. That's it. I don't know what else to say to you. So Jan's parents, they're worried sick. And they insist that she come live with them for the time being so that she can heal. And she was sad because she'd be missing Al's birthday, but he insisted it was okay. It was around this time that he found his next project, his next girl he wanted to save, Dawn Marie Spence. When he laid eyes on her, he knew he wanted to fix her. She was a bit younger than the ones he typically went for. She was only 18. He's 50. But she had the brown hair. It was parted down the middle that he loved so much. He picked her up for his birthday, took her to a hotel for a half and half, and Don immediately knew what to do. And Al seemed super easy to please. In fact, it was a welcome break from her long day. She said that Al was laid back, less aggressive, and more chill than her other customers. And he even paid her a whopping $100. 70 for her time, 30 for the tip. Usually people only paid her like $50 total. So Don thought to herself, did I... Did I just find myself a unicorn? Did I just find myself a sugar daddy? I just want to clarify, nothing is wrong with a sugar daddy relationship as long as it's legal and consensual. Okay, that was my little disclaimer. So Al had this great birthday and Dawn had dreams of being a sugar baby. So let's talk about Dawn Spence and who she really was. She was just the kind of girl that Al Canty couldn't have resisted helping. For one, Dawn was born the same year that Al graduated college. And we know how he likes his girlfriends young. Alarming, but moving on. She also grew up in the suburbs. I would like to say more middle-class suburbs. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly upper-class, but it was a very, very safe area. Her parents were, um, they had this picture-perfect house, but inside it was fighting nonstop. Listen, no kid wishes for their parents to divorce, but Don did. It was better if they did. Instead, all day, Every day was them fighting at the top of their lungs, breaking up, making a whole deal, packing their bags, leaving the house, getting back together. It was bad. No, like really bad. Court records show that Mr. Spence had a violent temper. He threatened to shoot his wife, gave her 14 stitches on one occasion, and uh, Mrs. Spence was under medical care for depression. So the two of them, they just could not get their lives together. They couldn't even take care of Don and her sister, Patty. The two girls were left to raise themselves essentially sometimes the dad would come home and say hey girls i've got friends coming over so why don't you two get lost dawn was so depressed she attempted suicide at just 12 years old using her mom's depression medication she would spend six weeks in a psychiatric hospital recovering and um this is just so weird but sometime after that she's released dawn's mom's new boyfriend yeah i know it's a little complicated was like hey A friend of mine is in jail and he's lonely. You should totally be his pen pal. Dawn's like 13 and confused. She didn't know what a creep was, so she just did it because her mom and her new boyfriend told her to. I, I don't know what letters were said between the two, what kind of talks that they had, but I can't imagine it would have been good for Dawn. I mean, this guy is just a predator. Exactly. Imagine what kind of... Exactly. What? 
I can't even explain to you the thought process in any of the adults' minds on this one. So in high school, Dawn's actually a really bright student. She had nearly a 4.0 GPA with little to no effort. She even managed the school's bookstore. She just seemed to have this wholesome life put together. That is until she started dating. Her choice in guys, I mean, it was horrible. The guys were horrible, horrible people. She was once really into this one guy whose idea of a date was doing drugs, walking into a JCPenney, and stealing a mini TV. How do you do that? I it did not specify. You know, I think if they specify, we'll all be stealing mini TVs from a Jay Z Benny's. <laughs> like, what do you see in someone like that? Dawn's friends would ask her constantly. I don't get it, and she would just say, "Well, he's nice to me, and he takes me places, and he pays attention to me." So it's clear Dawn craved love—the thing that she never got from her parents. But the problem was she didn't know what love is, so she just thought anybody giving her any sort of attention. Was love. She starts dating a guy named Donnie. Now Donnie really encouraged her. He said, "Hey babe, you know what's better than weed? <laughs> Cocaine. Like if you mix it with alcohol and throw in a few random pills that I'm giving you. I mean, we could even sniff some paint if you want. That would be cool. That's better than weed." So Donnie was the guy that just really sent Don down this. Dark path. She had worked her ass off her entire high school years at this pizza place. She just wanted to buy herself a car. Well, Donnie, he crashed it within a few months. Donnie would be doing seventy miles down a residential street. Don would be yelling at him like, "Hey, you need to go slower." He would visibly turn away from the street, look at her in the passenger seat, slap her around, and say, "Quit it, bitch! Quit telling me what to do." But they stayed together, and Don started skipping classes. She even told her friends, "I think I'm leaving. I'm gonna move in with Donnie." I'm like, what? No, I mean, what? You only have like a few semesters left, and with your GPA, you could easily get a scholarship. And you wanted to go to college, remember? So why stop now? Listen, things are just too tough here. I gotta go. So Don moved in with Donnie in his downtown apartment, and Donnie didn't even care. He just said, "I really had nothing to do with her skipping school. Like I moved downtown, and she said she'd rather be with me than her family, so she moved in." And I was like, "Okay." They start getting addicted to opioids, and they realize that they needed a lot more money if they wanted to keep their high for long periods of time. So Don would go out. She would put on her best helpless little girl face. She would complain to any passing man on the street about her rent, about not having money for food, and a lot of random guys would give her money. Don realizing how easy this was, she thought about wanting to get into sex work. Donnie, of course, was not on board, but there was no stopping Don. When she put her mind to something, she was going to do it. He was upset. In fact, he insisted that Don shower before she came back home from quote work. I mean, this really offended her because it's like, are you serious? I don't see you complaining about the money that I'm bringing in. I don't see you complaining about that. So shut up about this. They would get into these explosive fights, and Donnie would hit her. And this is where in the relationship that Don is when she bumps into John Fry. So this John character, he goes by Lucky. And Don just saw love when she saw this man, even though he was pushing forty and his hairline was pushing something too. Lucky saw dollar signs in his eyes, a lot of them, like four dollar signs, when he looked at Don. Don was young, eighteen at the time. She was she was new in the business. She had a whole life ahead of her, a whole career ahead of her until she turned twenty one. She was pretty and she had potential. Lucky knew he had to work his magic and his luck on this one, and soon enough, Don fell head over heels in love with him. She genuinely thought that they were boyfriend and girlfriend, that they were dating. 
Lucky just had this way of attracting people. He was he was charismatic. I will give him that. He knew how to play to his strengths. He was good at making people feel at ease. And once they were comfortable enough, he would learn what you need the most, not what you think you need. I mean, some people think that, okay, well, if I just have money, right, everything will be okay. But sometimes you have this inner emotional need of validation that you might not even notice. And he starts exploiting you by fulfilling these inner emotional needs. I mean, where did he learn that, right? Also, the whole money thing, it's because if you're dating Lucky and you happen to be a sex worker, you would think that, okay, well, I'm kind of in it for the money. Like, it's not necessarily the most fun job, but I'm in it for the money. He would take most of the money. So there's got to be something else that he's giving you that you might find more attractive than the money itself. Does that make sense? So, I mean, where did Lucky learn this? Was it the army where he was drafted before Dawn was even born? Probably not. He deserted the army on two separate occasions. He was busy committing crimes, counterfeiting bad checks, breaking and entering. That was just a normal Tuesday for Lucky. He would go around bragging about how many people he killed. Listen, I don't know if any of this sounds lucky. Like, why is his name Lucky? He claims it's because a rival gang severely beat him, left him for dead, but he somehow survived against all odds. Now, there's no record of this. Most people actually say that he's called Lucky because he has this extraordinary way of getting himself out of trouble, usually by licking the police's butthole and snitching on his peers. So that's not really an admirable nickname, I would say. So he just stuck with his little gang story. By the time that he meets Don, he's already spent over 10 years in prison, which he's tried to escape from on three different occasions, by the way. I mean, he spent more than half of Don's life in prison. Lucky had also been married three times, divorced, had five children somewhere. Not that he cared for them in any capacity. So on the last time that he's paroled, he's sent to a halfway house and he just decides, you know what? I'm leaving. I don't want to go back to this. I don't want to go back to prison. I don't want to go back to this high risk life of crime, of counterfeiting and drug dealing. I just want to be a little bit more conservative. I want to get into sex work. Well, I don't really want to work. I, I don't work. No, no. That's for second class citizens like females. Yeah, the F word, females. He was going to be their pimp. But he hated that word. He hated the word pimp. He believed he was too sophisticated to be a pimp. He was, he's a businessman. He said the word was demeaning for himself. It was almost as demeaning as calling a woman a whore. Yeah, because only women can be whores. He was also um, more of a protector and a boyfriend to these girls. That's what he liked to envision himself as. So his job was to technically steal all the girls' money and then provide quote-unquote protection which is beating up a guy who raped or tried to kill one of his girls. But that was always after the fact. And that's if Lucky even found the guy. Lucky said this about his job, and he uses the um, derogatory term for sex workers a lot, so I'm going to replace it with sex worker, but just imagine the P word there. So you'd say, personally, I feel that 99% of the people in the world are sex workers. They sex work themselves to do a job or whatever. And therefore, if you got to sex work yourself and sell yourself anyway, then why not make believe that you're not? Which is what most people do. Wait, what? So he's just saying that everyone in the world are selling themselves to do a job and get paid. So if you're already going to sell yourself, why try to believe that you're not a sex worker? Because that's what you're doing. He would also call women... B-R-O-A-D-S. I don't know if that's a slur, okay? He said all females will live with a dude for security and fuck another dude on the side. But he said, you know, I'm a realist enough that I'd rather know that she's out there getting paid to fuck another dude than me going out and me selling myself and her fucking for free while I'm gone. How is someone so good at, like, spinning things into something so... 
<laughs> like disgusting. So make himself feel so good about himself. So like, he's saying all women are going to live with you and cheat on you. So if he's going to go get a job and work, she's going to be fucking for free. So why doesn't he just stay home and she goes out and fuck for money? Because she's going to be fucking anyway. I want to punch this guy no. so bad. Oh my God. <laughs> like I just, I want to punch him. If you asked him, but what makes a girl give her body to a man? She doesn't even know. Like, you really think everyone wants to do that? You think girls are like, yeah, this is the best job I've ever had. Like, you would say, money. And if I was a woman, I'd be the biggest whore in the world because I love money. I'll do anything for money. Well, he'll do anything as long as it doesn't put his own neck on the line, but you get it. So let's talk about Cheryl. Because she was very unlucky to meet Lucky. He was one of his girls prior to Dawn. She was only 16 when they met. Lucky was in his 30s at this point, by the way. She was traumatized. She was raped by her stepfather. She ran away from home. And Lucky, Lucky convinced her to sell her body for money. Money that he was going to take from her to support his lifestyle and his drug habit. And he was going to take it. All in exchange for that, Lucky would provide Cheryl protection. So what did Cheryl get out of his protection? Was she protected? Well, Cheryl will endure nearly six unwanted pregnancies, a miscarriage, a saline abortion, which is an incredibly painful, difficult way to get an abortion. It's rarely done anymore. You're injecting saline directly into your womb, essentially. Broken ribs, which were not an accident. A shattered spleen, again, domestic violence. Several drug overdoses. Countless bacterial infections from dirty needles from having so many injection sites. She was by one of Lucky's closest friends. She was thrown out of a car naked 20 miles from downtown. She had to fight off men trying to have their way with her and rape her. These people, they're like, what an opportunity. A naked woman just dropped somewhere. This is a sign. She had to fight off a guy threatening to rape her with a screwdriver. Like, it was bad. She was also gang raped by 29 members of a motorcycle gang. And she endured at least two rapes a month from her line of sex work. So she's supposed to pay Lucky all of this money for what? His protection that he was nowhere to be found during these incidents. He did nothing for her afterwards to support her, to help her get justice, to help her through it. Nothing. In fact, he was using her money to get high and encouraged her to work more hours. And it was hard for Cheryl to say no. Lucky convinced her that they were in love that they were a couple that were going to find their way out of the streets. He built this dream for her to hold on to. And on top of that, he had her addicted to drugs. She had no money because he took it all and she had nowhere to go. Neighbors said it was really bad. The couple would fight and you could hear through the walls Lucky just beating Cheryl for like 45 minutes straight. That's why she had broken ribs and she had to have her spleen removed. Cheryl just felt so trapped. She attempted to take her life on two separate occasions and Lucky panicked and he tried to show her how much he loved her. By getting a tattoo of her name. Super romantic. He also called her Twiggy as a nickname. And he, he got Twiggy tattooed on himself too. And Cheryl would tell herself, it's okay. He loves me. Things will get better. But they wouldn't. She came home from the hospital one day. And Lucky had already gone out and found a new house guest. Her name was Dawn Spence. So Lucky pulls angry Cheryl aside and shh, don't be mad, don't be mad. Listen, she's got a super sad story, so she has to stay with us. Her dad evicted her and I don't, I don't want you to work anymore. That's why I brought her in. She's going to work, support both you and me. You can stay in, sleep and you don't have to work the streets anymore. She's our meal ticket. And as much as Cheryl wanted to believe Lucky, she could tell she was being phased out. She was getting too old for him. She was getting too old for this line of work. She was almost 20. So yeah. What the fuck? Even though Cheryl was panicked about being phased out, she tried to be nice to Don. 
but immediately decided Dawn was a bitch. Dawn refused to talk to anyone unless it was lucky. She acted like she was too good for this apartment. She called all sex workers two-cent whores, and she called anyone with a drug addiction a junkie. Whenever Dawn did decide to grace her presence in conversations, she was super condescending. She would brag about how she grew up in the suburbs versus the projects like everybody else, which, yeah, I mean, she was not a good person. I'll give that. She's got a lot of problems and she's young, but she's not a great Great time to be around. Dawn, that one. So Cheryl just couldn't do it anymore. Dawn was a bitch, and Lucky was worshipping the ground that Dawn walked on. So Cheryl pulls him aside. Hey, how come you're paying more attention to her than me? Maybe you should invite that bitch to sleep with you then, not me. So that same night, Lucky moves Cheryl's stuff out of the room. And she she was fed up. She told him, fuck you then. I'm taking my business and I'm leaving. So Shale would kind of come back and forth into the picture and out and, you know, kind of hopping around. We'll get back to her. Meanwhile, Lucky and Don, they're in love. I guess if you could call it that. Don even wrote a letter to him. It read, my love for you grows stronger with each passing day. I love you, baby. So much it hurts me deep inside. It feels like something is tearing my heart out. You are and always will be the love of my life. I yearn to lay in your strong arms, the arms that have protected and supported me. You're my whole life, and you will continue to be my whole life for as long as you wish. Lucky said, no, I loved her too. Seriously, it was mutual. She was the first woman in years that I respected. I mean, I know she was 18, but she was... Mature for her age. She, cons- I considered her an equal. First woman I met in years that I could call an equal and I could sit down with her and talk to her. None of that simple-minded bullshit. He even let her grab a tattoo gun and cross out the Cheryl tattoo that he had. I guess he didn't tell her that Twiggy was also Cheryl's nickname because that tattooed stayed. Speaking of tattoos, Lucky had a lot. He had a LBT tattooed on him. Not to be confused with BLT, bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich, but LBT for living on borrowed time, as well as FTW, which I always thought stood for for the win. Yeah. Uh, But he said it meant fuck the world. (laughs) Okay. It's kind of a half half empty type of guy, right? Glass half empty. And then he had your usual Harley Davidson, a bald eagle, a skull of some sort, other motorcycle references, skull and bones with the words, as you are. I was. <laughs> it's so com- I don't even under as you are, I was. As I am, you will be. I don't know what that means. That's overly complicated. That's dumb. <laughs> am I dumb? So now here's the one that's gonna get you. He had white power printed in big text vertically down his arms. White on one arm, power on the other. Yeah. And we're laughing because of how stupid and racist and ridiculous. Like, can you actually imagine someone having that tattoo? It, it sounds fake. And it was on the back of his arm. So it was only visible when he was walking away. Now, Lucky lives in a part of Detroit that's 70% black. And he said, this is what he said. Uh, he said, well, nobody cared because I guess they figure if I'm crazy enough to have a tattoo, I'm crazy enough to back it up. I literally want to punch this guy. I can't wait for this guy's luck to run out because karma's going to get him good. Oh, and if you aren't already trying to jump over the table when you see this guy to punch him in the face, just kidding, FBI, we're not doing that. Here's a poem he wrote. You know what? I'm not even going to recite it. It's shit poetry, but it's about him drinking a coffee when he sees a, um, a black man that he refers to in a very horrendous racial slur riding by on a Harley And he chases down the black man to beat him up and squash his brain so he could free the Harley from its doom and its public humiliation of being ridden by insert racial slur. 
This is what he called peak poetry. This is like what he genuinely thought what life was about. This is the type of guy Lucky is. So after Lucky starts dating Dawn, he starts taking all of her money, what a respectable guy, and creating rules for her, one of them being that she couldn't take on any black customers. Yeah, super racist. He also hated the fact that the area was run by black gangs and how he had no power. He hated it. He thought he should be in the one in power because, you know, white power. He would drive Dawn through the, through the suburbs. They would drive real slow, windows rolled down, the fresh scent of summer, fresh cut grass. The streets were clean. The family homes were massive. And they would see a house on sale. They break in. Which, by the way, they're not discreet. They just leave their car parked in the driveway. They start running their hands down the marble countertops, the fireplace mantle, imagining their lives in a house like this. Then they take the party upstairs where they had sex on the master bedroom floor. Later, the realtor arrives and they pretended like it was an open house. They just made some small talk and inquired about the price and casually left. <laughs> what? Lucky was so hyped up in the car. He's calculating how much Don was making on the streets because he's not working a day in his life. And he's like, OK, well, if you work the next 365 days a year, then we could buy this house. I mean, all we have to do is save most of what you earn because we don't pay taxes because remember, it's all cash. And we cut down on the drugs and we save everything. And Dawn was starry-eyed. She's like, oh my God, really? Babe, I really want that house. I want to live there one day. And you're going to get that house. You just have to believe. If you believe, anything can happen. Don't sell yourself short. You have so much potential. So Dawn, if you sell yourself as a $15 whore, you're going to look and act like a $15 whore. It's always been my feeling and my knowledge that if you feel like you're worth $50, then that's what you're worth. In your heart and in your mind, you have to feel qualified to get that money. Like a fake it till you make it type situation, I guess. Now, let's come up with a new business plan, a new business model. If you want to charge $50, you have to stand out. You have to make sure you're not a drug addict. Or at least make the clients believe you're not. I mean, think about it. You need your next fix they're going to be cheap with you. They're going to see the veins on your hands and your arms. And they're going to say, ah, I know she needs new drugs. So $15 for a half and half. They're going to bargain you because you have a big motivation. But if they think you're paying your way through college or you're down on your luck, they're going to treat you like a high class sex worker. So instead of injecting yourself in your hands, because you're going to have these bludging blood vessels in your hands and your arms, you have to inject yourself in the groin. That'll be the best part of entry. So Don and Lucky, they felt so productive. They felt so excited by thinking about how much money they were going to make and how much money they were going to save in this house that they were going to buy. So they decide to celebrate their decision to buy a new house by having a massive drug party. Anyways, just a few months later, Don meets Al Canty. And the two of them, Don and Lucky, they realized that their dream house was closer than they thought. Al was going to be their cash cow. And Lucky's dreams of leaving that downtown area and buying a nice suburban house and living that true, rich, white power life that he felt he had always deserved what was owed to him since the day he was born, he was going to get it. So was Al Canty going to be the sugar daddy of Don's dreams? Well, they had a strange relationship. After just having sex once, Al was already hooked. He felt like he needed to save her. So when Dawn was arrested for sex work, she was given a $200 bail, but, you know, she told Al it cost $400, which he gladly forked up. Lucky pocketed all of it. He told Dawn he was going to keep it safe for the house down payment. To be fair, he did save some of it, but he treated himself to heroin with the rest. So much for giving up drugs for their dream house, which Lucky had no intention of ever doing that, by the way. He thought instead of him cutting back, Dawn could just make more money. So he starts encouraging her, you need to get Al wrapped around your finger. And it worked. 
Al would pick up Dawn, take her to dinner, take her shopping, buy her $600 outfits. Lucky was so proud of her. He always told her, it's better to get paid $100 to eat than $100 to fuck. Now, Dawn must have felt really comfortable around Al. I mean, he did have a way of making people feel nice. She even told him that she was on drugs, that she was addicted to heroin. He's like, yeah, I know about drugs. I work at the emergency room at the Detroit Receiving Hospital. That was a lie. I mean, Al lied about a few things, let's be real. He said that his name was Dr. Al Miller, and he was a doctor at an emergency room, not a psychiatrist. Oh, and he also said that he wasn't married at all. Understandable that he would lie about these things. But then the lie just went really deep. If anything, I feel like he borrowed a story from a patient to make it seem super real because, I mean, it was just a really immersive experience of a lie. He said, you know, I was married once. I even had a little daughter. And my wife at the time, when I met her, she was a sex worker. We got married and uh, she quit working. She was a stay-at-home mom. I bought her this mansion. It's a Tudor-style mansion. We were going to start a family there. And it just, it wasn't enough for her. She turned to cocaine. She started leaving at night to work the streets again to support this cocaine habit. She put us in debt. She sold everything without me knowing. She put me in credit card debt just to support this cocaine habit. I tried to get her into rehabs, but she never stayed straight for long. She never recovered. And one day she was in the car with my little kid. They got into an accident. My daughter was killed in the accident and my wife was taken to the hospital. But after three weeks of life support, she died too. You know, it's funny because I still owe a hospital bill for that. And the Tudor, Tudor style house in Grass Point, I, I can't live there anymore. Not with all the memories. I rented it out. I didn't sell it. Of course not. But now I just stay at a doctor's residence near the hospital. And ever since then, I've just kind of, just kind of dived deep into work. Don cared, but not really. Like, she was like, uh, okay. Like, she just cared that he was a good sugar daddy, which he was. You know, Al wasn't eager for sex like most other clients Don had. He also didn't like kissing or holding hands much. Honestly, he just seemed super chill. He genuinely wanted to get to know Don. He kept wanting to see her again. And she was more than happy to meet with him. So truly, I think that this is Al's need to save another girl, feel useful in a sense. He kept promising her how she would never have to work another day in sex work, how he was going to get her an apartment and move her out into a nice area, set up a little house for her. He would even pay her through college if she wanted to study something. He would constantly tell her, and a big yikes incoming. Don, you're college material, you know that? Yeah. I'm thinking about starting my own private practice soon. Which he had, but remember, she thinks he works in the ER. And he keeps telling her, you can come work for me as a receptionist. Eventually, they start meeting in Don and Lucky's apartment. He would come pick her up or just sit around. He would pay her for her time, of course. But he just wanted to be in the same room with Don, even if it just meant drinking coffee and chatting. Don said it was so boring. I just had to tune him out. But it was the easiest money I ever made. Wow. And he has no clue that she's... Not interested? You know, I think it's one of those situations where I truly believe he thinks that with enough convincing, with enough showing Dawn the lifestyle she can have, it would be in her best interest for her to leave sex work and potentially move in with this guy, right? Start a life with this guy. But she was just not having it. Like she was all in for Lucky. Like she didn't even care. She genuinely didn't mind sex work. So in the mornings, Don and Lucky had to be on the lookout. Sometimes Al would stop by to, you know, drop off breakfast, donuts, orange juice, his little coffee blend. Yeah, he was a bit of a coffee snob, so he would always have like a nice fancy blend at her place. Lucky would always jump out of bed and hide in a closet. 
He did at one point run into Al and he just introduced himself as Don's friend. But the minute that Al left, shirtless Lucky would sneak out and laugh. And he would tell her, you know he's trying to elevate the relationship. At least in his mind. He wants it to be more than what it actually is. It happens sometimes, Don. You're too new to know. But it usually doesn't last longer than a few weeks. Maybe a few months if we're lucky. But they always wake up to reality. My advice? Get all you can right now. These dudes, they're unpredictable. You have to treat every date like it's the first and the last. One day, they just don't show up and they're gone. And they're not going to announce it ahead of time. Maybe Lucky was wrong, because Al didn't seem to be letting up. About a month and a half into meeting Don, Al was coming around three, four times a week. And thanks to Al, Don and Lucky were able to blow about $300 a day on heroin. Jeez, $300 a day. That's... Insane. You know how much that is? That's no. nine grand a month. So Dawn, she was injecting nine grand of heroin a month into her groin because she didn't want it to be obvious that she was a user and it wasn't going well. The injection site was super infected. She was hospitalized multiple times for chills, headaches, 104 degree fever. She even went against all doctor's orders and left the hospital early and continued to inject the same infected groin. She couldn't just sit around and wait. Besides, do you hear that? The jingles. Don was in the Christmas spirit for the holidays. So Lucky wants to go visit his dad and his brother in Tennessee. Now, this is like a subplot, like a side story that's not really pertinent to the story, but it is just what the fork is going on. In order to get into Tennessee, they needed about $300 for the gas money and other things. So the unlikely trio of Don, Cheryl, and Lucky, yeah, Cheryl's back around now, they decide that they're going to go to Tennessee together. I can't even imagine this car ride. So they head to Tennessee, and it was such a weird trip. They just had this very sinister energy. And on Christmas morning, Lucky's dad finds his other son, Jim Fry, shirtless in the car, dead, blood everywhere, a shotgun next to him. It was implied that he shot himself. Even the police ruled it a suicide. So in Pete's grief that his son had just passed, he didn't even notice that Lucky and the two girls took Jim's car to drive off in. Now, now, before we jump to conclusions... Lucky was somewhat fond of his brother. So there's no real motive for Lucky to kill his own brother unless it was for the car, which that just seems insane and wild. Besides, there were other people in Jim's life that could have killed him, like his girlfriend Janet. She was really shady. She's going to come into the picture later, but she was a little shady. And it's possible that it was suicide. We just have no way of knowing the truth. Now, Lucky didn't seem to care much about the Ford when he got back to Detroit, but he did have a plan. He wanted Dawn to pretend that she was going to buy it, and she wanted Al to pay up the money so that she could afford it. Over $1,000 for this new car. $1,000 for a car? Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> so random. <laughs> it's a really good deal, but it is really random. So Al coughs up the money, and Dawn would never owe the car. She would never own the car. Lucky would sell it to somebody else. And he took that $1,000 as well, and that night he used it to get drunk and do drugs with Cheryl. Al had given Don over $2,000 for the holidays, and it was all spent within three days. So Lucky's just seeing endless dollar signs and not a single motivation to save any money. He felt like the money bag was endless and bottomless, but not only that, more, more dangerously, he felt entitled to this money. So the high didn't last long. Dawn had been hospitalized again. Al pulled some strings so that she got the best room in the hospital. She didn't have to wait like the other peasants. She was escorted into her room and it was bad. The doctors told her that they needed to operate and there was a good chance that they would need to amputate her leg if the, inspection, if the infection had spread. And at first Dawn agreed, but then she's like, well, wait, if I die, I die. You're not going to take my leg. <laughs> okay so she's like i'd rather die than not have my leg okay so it's hard to say um thankfully 
because you'll see later, but the team, they cleaned up her infection and she lived another day. They said if she waited any longer, she probably would have died. She would spend the next 10 days recovering in the hospital. Dawn demanded Al not only pay Lucky some money while she was in the hospital, but for him to deliver her heroin so that she doesn't feel the withdrawal symptoms. Now, Al, the board-certified doctor with a PhD, was like, yeah, that's a really good idea. He even bumps into Cheryl and he asked her, hey, quick question, Cheryl, about Lucky. Tell me about him. Dawn's in love with him, isn't she? How long have they been living together? Cheryl was taken off guard because they weren't supposed to know. Al wasn't supposed to know. Lucky has been hiding all of this time. She didn't say anything, but clearly Al was much more perceptive than Lucky and Dawn gave him credit for. But Lucky just didn't care. I mean, did he care about anything? Because while Dawn is almost dying in the hospital, he went over there, cooked heroin in the hospital room, and used the hospital IV to administer it to Dawn. So when Dawn gets out... Al seems even more attached. He starts coming over every single day, and Lucky was just so exhausted. He didn't even care or bother to leave when Al came around now. He was over it. I mean, Cheryl told Al, he's already suspecting you guys, so let him be sus all he wants. But one day, Al comes in, puts his things down, and says, John, this is Lucky's real name. John, I want to talk to you. Don, why don't you get us some coffee? Give us some space. Sit down and say, I know you and Don are boyfriend and girlfriend. Lucky's like, what, me, who, what, that's crazy. No, we're not. Let's stop the games, John. I've been around. Now, I have strong feelings for Dawn. Do you get that? Okay, and what are you saying? Why are you saying that? To say what? What are you implying? What would it cost for you to get out of the picture, John? I'm, I'm I'm not some kind of man who walks out of someone's life for some cash. I mean, at least not right away. I have to think about it. But I just want you to know, it's not going to be easy or cheap for me to leave town and start fresh, to reestablish myself in this business. Besides, that girl means a lot to me. So, I have to think about it. Lucky was pissed. Something about this proposal just pissed him off. So he tells Don, what the fuck is going on? Where does he come off coming at me like that? I don't know, Lucky. That's just the way it is. He just wants you out of the picture. Was that what you want, Don? No, don't even try it, John. You know me better than that. What a freaking idiot. And Lucky starts scratching his chin. I mean, that doesn't mean we have to pass up this opportunity. I mean, there's room for negotiation, that's clear. So why don't you talk to him about offering me a lot of money? I'll pretend to leave, but I won't. Or maybe we can even take that money and run off to a different town. We'll start fresh somewhere else. So, what do you say? Don agrees, and at first she squeezes about $5,500 in a plane ticket to anywhere around the world for Lucky. Lucky wasn't satisfied. He knew better than to accept the first offer. Besides, he knew that Al was willing to pay more. So he had Don counter with twenty-five dollars and a plane ticket. Al negotiated, and they both settled on about $15,000 and a plane ticket. But before the couple was $15,000 richer, Dr. Al Canty would be admitted into the psychiatric ward. Yeah. So he had a mental breakdown from all the stress. Now, remember how he was dropped off by Jan's good friends, Celia and John? Well, the couple had a lot to talk about on their way home that night. Celia and John wanted to tell Jan about what Al had said. I mean, the more the two thought about it, the more messed up it was. They were Jan's friends. They weren't Al's friends. He was just her husband. They never really even liked Al to begin with. They felt like Al had manipulated Jan into believing she never wanted kids. So he would tell her over and over again, oh, your career is going to be more important once you finish college. I mean, we don't have time but they felt like deep down jan wanted kids another odd thing was that al he would have this um huge fight about where to park jan's car you see they have a five car garage and you're like okay what's the problem they're gonna just put jan's car in there but he needed all five of them for his all five cars and he forced jan to park her new car in the driveway 
She was so frustrated by this because, I mean, even at night, that means she would have to get out of her car, run into the house. A garage in that sense would be a lot safer and a lot more comfortable, especially if it's raining. She told this to Al and he said, well, if you want a garage, you can park it in my mom's garage. But Al, that's four miles away. How would I get home? And he ended the conversation there. Oh, and since the mirrors were letting it out anyway, they never liked how freaking annoying Al was. Whatever movie he wanted to watch, they all went to see it. They always went to the restaurant of his choice. Whenever he came over to their house with Jan, he expected uh, a coffee to be delivered with him, hot out of the pot. And the fact that he still made Jan do a bunch of his secretarial work for him at night, even though she was no longer his secretary, and in fact, she graduated with a PhD, he still made her do this type of work for him. I mean, Jan was devoted to him at a fault. But how could they tell her that? So they opted to not say anything. A similar approach to uh, Al's, Al's mom, Gladys. When the hospital asked about previous breakdowns, she had turned the other way, remember? She said, no way, that's never happened before. Well, there was an incident. And I think Gladys really only knew part of it. So I can't even blame her for not telling the hospital. It was a lot. There was a point where Al was going to be drafted into the army. And he wanted his friend to break his arm for him. So they rent a motel. They get shit-faced, and Al is insisting, Ray, put up my arm to the telephone pole, and uh, you're going to lean back, and with all your might, you, I want you to karate chop my, my arm with your leg. Well, not in half, just enough to break my arm. And Ray is freaking out, like, I can't do this, I can't do this, like, I can't, I can't do this. And Al's like, freaking do it. So he backs up, but of course, at the end, he just, he withholds his strength, and he only ends up bruising Al's arm instead of breaking it. And Al Cansey, in the moment of freaking out, wrote a letter to his mom that said something along the lines of, Dear Mommy, before I went to bed, I thought I'd better get a letter off to my best girl. What? Yeah. What? And he talked about how anxious he was for the army draft. I mean, being anxious for the army draft is understandable. Calling your mom Mommy and my best girl when you're 19, a bit alarming. Regardless, around this time, Al starts seeing a psychiatrist. I mean, he was just too anxious to even function, and Gladys thought this would help and fix his problems, but she didn't know how deep his problems were. Al had a bit of a double life, even when he was younger. To his parents, he was this hardworking kid that was overstressed, overachieving, overly invested into every little thing that he did. But even in high school, he was stealing money from his girlfriend so he could go to Chicago and hire sex workers. One time he robbed a gas station with another friend. He loved to drive recklessly. If he was ever stopped, he would go out of his way to be pulled over and he would purposely go on the wrong way in a one-way lane in front of the police. When they pull him over, he'd roll down his window and proudly say, well, my dad is Al Canty. You know him because he trains you. He also works for the psychopathic clinic down the street. And that usually worked and Al Jr. would be driving off laughing. And even when Al started dating, I mean, he would just woo all these girls. And the problem was that he wanted to win and impress a girl, but he didn't really care for the girl herself. He loved the idea of having a girl. Even his first relationship in high school that was serious, her name was Betty. He would shower her with praise, essentially love bomb her, and she ate it up. And then, and then he starts pressuring her to dress a certain way, wear certain clothes, wear her hair a certain way, wanted her to talk in a certain way. Mainly, he just wanted her to use bigger words, sound fancier when she spoke. It seemed like he wanted to elevate her to be a woman of a certain social standing, and she just felt like she was turning into a trophy. It was miserable. So she breaks up with him, and uh, what does Al do? Well, he breaks into her house and starts rearranging her laundry in the basement. I mean, why? I don't know. Maybe he's trying to take her undies. It's hard to say. He was so desperate, he stalked her. He jumped out of the bushes one day, got down on one knee, and Betty said he produced, pulled out the biggest diamond she had ever seen in her entire life, to the point where she didn't know if it was real or fake. 
And he proposed to her and he promised he would change. But Betty was like, uh, no, doesn't matter the ring. How old was he? It's like 18. Yeah. So yeah. no way he pulled out like a freaking yeah. 10 carat diamond. Exactly. So Betty stuck to her gut and declined. Then a week later, jumps out of another bush and he's got a little bandage on his arm. Betty, it's cancer. You got to stay with me, please. I'm dying. Yeah, she didn't fall for it. Al eventually got over it too, and he married his first wife, Maggie. Now, anyways, Gladys, the mom, genuinely seemed to have no idea what was wrong with the son. And as far as she was concerned, this was his first psychotic break. Jan, though, she had a few ideas. She rushed into Al's office while he was admitted, and she realized just how much things were falling apart. Of course he was overworked. Like, that was her main idea. Even to his contact list of patients, it was it was insane. It took her so much time to go through his list of patients and call them like, hey, your sessions are being postponed. Everything was in disarray. Everything should have been updated years ago, but it's been neglected. She just went into save the day wife mode. She started opening up letters, paying bills, and she was shocked at just how many unpaid bills Al had. I mean, it made sense. Poor thing. He was so busy. He didn't even have time to ask me or anybody for help. Here's the fascinating thing. The couple kept their finances separate. She had no idea what Al's balance was. And now she had to check for the first time to pay the bills. And it was at freaking zero. The checking account was at zero. He didn't even have a savings account. I mean, between his mortgage, multiple cars, the rent for his office, and all of his other costs, so in all the cash that he's been withdrawing to blow on Don, Al is spending more than he made, which is incredibly hard to do when you're making $500,000 a year. So he even asked his parents to borrow money whenever he ran out. Jan had no idea. She was completely, blissfully unaware of how bad the finances were. So she's angry at Al for being so irresponsible, for not telling her what was going on. And then she's mad at herself for being so trusting. I mean, she wondered what else Al was hiding from her. On the other side of town, Lucky and Don were wondering too. Where the hell was Al in their payment? He owed them the money so that Lucky could get out of town and leave Don alone. But now they couldn't even contact him. It's been a week since they were arranged to hand the money over. Lucky felt like he had put too much pressure on Al and that he was gone for good. And he's like, damn, we shouldn't have pushed so hard. But two weeks pass and Don is happy rushing into the apartment and Lucky was in a mood. He's like, what the fuck are you so happy about? Look who's here, Lucky. And in walks Al Canty. So he's been released and he starts overcompensating. I mean, this guy is too eager to explain where he'd been. Lucky notices he's good at social cues. Al is just going on and on about, oh, I had to drive to this medical conference and then I got into a car accident on the way back and I was in a coma for two weeks. My friend was in a coma. I was in the hospital for another two weeks just making sure everything was good. I was just released yesterday. He spent like 10 minutes telling the story. Lucky didn't buy it, but it didn't matter because he had the money. He hands over $15,000, mainly in $100 bills. That same day, Don was taken to the ER for blood clots and infections. Lucky did not care that she almost died because $15,000 made him a very, very rich man, and he was going to get high like one for weeks. He did have Al deliver heroin to Don at the hospital, so that's sweet. And he kept saying, you know, I'll leave once Don is good. I'll leave once Don is good. Now, here's the wild part. And I mean, nothing really explains what happened to Al in the hospital or when he got out, but it seems like he was super stressed. But now all of that is out the window and he's just hyper fixated on Don and being with Don and Don's life was great. Al wanted to get her an apartment and conservatively, she was making about $300 a day, six days a week, about $7,200 a month tax-free. All she had to do was string Al along and make him believe that she had intentions to actually date him one day. So Lucky rents a house and he had Don, Janet, which is his brother's ex-girlfriend from Tennessee, 
and Cheryl move in. So they were going to engage in sex work under one roof. And everyone was going to pay Lucky a massive fee for housing them and, quote, keeping them safe. Also, Frank, who was Cheryl's on and off boyfriend, was going to move in too as protection. And in their free time, the five of them would conduct these drills while they were doing drugs. Lucky would shout, hide! And everyone would hide their drugs, hide their alcohol, and they would just try their best to not look high. They were not practicing for the police raid, but rather for Al stopping by. Which Al stopped by a lot, practically every day. Al knew that Don, Frank, Cheryl, Janet, they were all engaging in drugs, and they thought it was hilarious that he tried to fit in with them. He would constantly walk up to them and say, what's poppin'? Like, he was trying to be cool and hip, and they thought it was funny because he was desperately trying to fit in with them, but he was just getting scammed. They thought it was hilarious. Honestly, they're horrible. So Al starts feeling more and more comfortable with Don since he, he, he didn't think Lucky was out of the picture, but he just thought that this was the next step. Anyway, Al gave Don his work number for emergencies, and one time she got hospitalized again, and she called. And she got the answering machine to Dr. Al Canty. She's like, that's weird. I thought it was Dr. Al Miller. Who the hell is Al Canty? She decides to look into it, and she found him listed in a directory. He lived in a house in Gross Point. Remember how he said he moved out because he couldn't bear the memories of that house anymore? But he still lives there. That's strange. So Lucky and Don, they call the house number. Hi, could we speak to Dr. Al Canty? Oh, sorry, I'm the housekeeper, and he and Mrs. Canty are out of town for the week. I can take a message, though. And Lucky said he knew it. He hung up. That fucker is married. Listen, I don't know where this guy gets his morals from, but it seemed like he was pissed. And excited. Excited because this could easily be blackmail on a wealthy guy. Al had no idea about this, and he went on with his lie. In fact, he did the most. He tried to get Don more committed to moving in with him, and he said, I'm having the Grasse Point house renovated. And uh, these are some pictures. We could live there together one day. And he left the photo album with Don. I don't know if maybe it's like this whole psychological thing of, oh, if you like the way that this life could be here, keep it, ponder about it, imagine yourself here, that type of thing. I mean, even if she said, yes, I want that life and I want to live with you, what was he going to do? Break up with Jan for Don? Regardless, he leaves the photo album. That's just a massive multi-page flex of his life. He leaves it with Don and Lucky is in awe. He's like, look at that solid oak kitchen, that sunny sunroom with the ceramic tile floor. Look at these beautiful, the carved moldings, the 10 foot high ceilings. Al had just unknowingly flexed his wealth in front of Don and Lucky, and that was not a good idea. By now, Al had blown around $400,000 on Don and Lucky. Lucky would later claim that it was as much as $800,000, but it, it's, it's hard to say. It's probably more consistent to around four hundred k. which by the way, I, I calculate everything with inflation so it's easier to get an understanding of just how much something costs, which is a boatload of money. And even Lucky was suspicious. Sometimes he would look over at Don, squint his eyes and say, Don, what the fuck are you doing to get this guy to fork over so much money? John, I swear to God, I've screwed the guy less than six times. Uh, We usually go about one to two weeks without any physical contact. And then he'll ask me, well, are you going to take care of me? And I usually just give him a blowjob and that's it. Lucky didn't believe her. He didn't think that she was lying, but it was something else. He said, you know, and I just want to preface this by saying what a great boyfriend Lucky is. He said, there's got to be something this guy wants. I mean, at first I thought it was an attraction to you, Don, but you're really not that great, or at least not for that kind of money. I mean, look at the way that you even treat him. It's just not normal. Listen, if you're giving a girl two, three hundred dollars a day and just spending one hour with her, that girl is supposed to say nothing to you in that hour. What? Implying that she's supposed to just. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
So Dawn was not that girl. Actually, Dawn started to hate Al, literally hate him. She was slowly started getting disgusted of him. She sucked at hiding it, by the way. She called him Al the pinhead behind his back. She would tell her friends, I wouldn't fuck him. He's lucky I suck his dick. And her attitude just started creeping into the ways that she kept asking him for more money. If Al hesitated, she would refuse to hang out with him. Sometimes she would run out into the driveway when he pulled up and her first words were, well, how much did you bring me today? But Al kept coming back. It's almost like he liked it more, the fact that Don was mean to him. So after this psychotic break of his, Al had been seeing an old therapist of his named Dr. Oz. Not the TV Oz, A-W-E-S. And he told him everything about Don, about the sex workers, everything, the money. And Dr. Oz felt like Don was unwittingly soothing Al. Don's punishment, her cruelty, was helping ease the guilt that Al had. It was temporarily freeing him. The therapist believed that if Don treated Al any better, he probably wouldn't have wanted to stay with her. Al was even amused by the games that they were playing. He knew that Lucky was still in the house. And he knew that every time he came over, Lucky was jumping around, hiding out the door. And he just kind of found some amusement in the whole charade. I don't know who's getting play here. I know. (laughs) But thanks to Dr. Oz, consistent work, uh, Al starts opening his eyes to just how bad things were. Al was constantly lying to his wife and his mom. He was giving a lot of money to his drug-addicted mistress and her sleazy pimp. And once the reality set in, he was disgusted with himself. He felt guilty for cheating on his wife. He was throwing away money that he should be using to build a life with Jan. So he comes up with this plan that he's going to wean Lucky and Don off his money. Now, Dr. Oz does not like this idea. He's like, no, you need to just get them out of your life. What are you talking about? Wean them off your money. Like, this is not your kid. This is not somebody like, what are you saying? And Al said, but I've been supporting their drug habit for so long. It would be cruel to cut them off cold turkey because they, can't, they, they need to get a handle on themselves first. So Dr. Oz told him, I get where you're coming from. I get it. I understand withdrawal is rough, but these people that you're dealing with, they're unstable. Your life could be in danger. Al did not take it seriously. I think he truly believed that Lucky and Don would live by the saying, how does it go? Never bite the hand that feeds you, but he would be very wrong. Al didn't quit visiting them. Um, He didn't quit them cold turkey. He would still visit Don a few times a week, but each time he brought less and less money. He would more so bring food. He wanted to help them wane off their addictions. But Lucky was pissed. He was heard going around telling everyone that doctor's fucking up. He's not paying me the money that he should, and I'm going to take him out if he doesn't get straight about it. I'm going to kick his ass. This shit's going to change. I'm going to have to get him right. I better get my money or shit's going to hit the fan. Meanwhile, Al was working hard to fix his life. He saw his therapist regularly. He tried to have a good relationship with his wife, Jan. He even helped her open a new office. He started dressing nicer for her, started doing things for her that she'd been asking, like polishing the desk, hanging up some pictures. He even started opening up to her. He talked about his psychotic break and he said, I was so scared in that hospital. I am working so hard to avoid that. I never want to go through something like that ever again. Remember that guy that tried to karate chop his arm? Yeah, Ray. (laughs) He even met up with his childhood friend, Ray. And he's rekindling this friendship. And he he told him everything about the sex worker, Don, about all of this and how much he regrets it and how much he loves Jan. And he just wants to make it right with his wife. He feels like this, this was what needed to happen for him to realize that he's been messing up. He never wants to do this again. He's grossed out by himself. His wife deserves better and he's going to give it to her. I mean, Al's mindset really did shift. It seemed like he was turning over a new leaf. Saturday, July 13th, Al goes into the office to see a few patients and it was a good day for him. He was in a happy mood. He called Jan and was like, hey, I'm going to be home early. I'm going to come home right after my last session ends and let's do something. 
So Jan's like, yes, I'm going to cook up some burgers. So during lunch, Al drops by to see Don. And instead of the few hundred dollars he usually gives, he gave uh, $40. And when Lucky saw it, he was pissed. I feel like he would have been less pissed with no money. I mean, it's wild when you really think about it, but he was pissed. So Al goes back to the office and nothing significant happens till about 5.15. It was the middle of his last therapy session and he gets a call. He picks it up and while in the room with the patient, she said she believed the caller to be a woman. And Al tried to end the phone call, but he was becoming, and I quote, increasingly disturbed. It was unnerving for her. You know, she was jittery by the time he hung up and he kept apologizing and saying, sorry, that was a very manipulative patient of mine. After she left, Al packed up his office, got into his car and sped down the ramp at the office garage. Now, here's the thing. We don't know why Al went back to Don and Lucky's house that night. He was supposed to go home early to spend time with his wife, but we don't know why he went. I think that we can suspect that maybe the couple had threatened to tell his wife the truth or threatened to expose him if he didn't hand over a certain amount of money. But even if that were the case, it was a very bad plan. Al Canty was very broke. He had a negative balance in his checkbook, and that was nothing compared to how much money he owed his office landlords, his creditors, and the IRS. So that night, Al picks up the couple, and the three of them drive around, trying to sell Al's gold watch for anyone who would buy it. So his watch was a gold Seiko, which I'm assuming by hearing gold, I mean, it's got to be pricey. Seiko's a really good brand. But they were selling it for $50. What? Yeah, $50, like a real one. $50. So they used that $50 to buy cocaine and they went back to Lucky and Don's house. Now, we don't know what happened for sure in the house, but it's heavily speculated. I mean, some parts are taken from Don, some from Lucky, and the speculation starts here. When they get back to the house, Don claims she went to the bathroom. She injected her cocaine in peace which usually is not the normal method of cocaine, but that's how Dawn liked to do it. She liked to inject it. She started getting very nauseous, so she starts throwing up in the toilet. Then she hears what sounds like a fight, building in the bedroom, like it's getting more and more climactic, more and more loud. She couldn't hear what was being said, but it was getting intense. So she rushed to clean herself up, open the bathroom door, and the two guys, they were fighting. Al was screaming in Lucky's face, it's my money, I can give it or I can take it, I can do whatever I want with it, if you don't like it, fuck you, I don't have to justify anything to you, it's my fucking money. According to Lucky's friend, Lucky wanted to get $100,000 from Al, but a few problems here. Number one, Al didn't have $100,000, he was broke, I mean he had to sell his watch to get some cocaine, and on top of that, he wasn't interested in Lucky or Dawn like that anymore, like he wasn't interested in Lucky leaving Dawn, he didn't care anymore, he wanted to wane them off, he was over it, he's not trying to live with Dawn. So according to Lucky, he told Al about the deal, like give me this much and I'll leave for good, didn't work, so he's like okay fine, just $55,000 and I'll leave for good. But Al's not having it anymore. And Lucky's like, why? Why Why don't you want me gone? Why is the money off? Why is the deal off? Why aren't you giving me money? And Al's frustrated and he's yelling, fuck you. I don't have to justify anything to you. It's my money. So Al shoves Lucky with one hand to his shoulder. And Lucky stumbles slightly. But there's this chair behind him, which he trips on. And it causes him to fall backwards. And he jumps up to his feet. His face is bright red and his chest is all puffed up. And he grabs his baseball bat in the corner. Lucky starts swinging at Al about four times. It said about after two strikes on the head, Al's skull cracked with intersecting fracture lines like a spider web, like a lightning bolt. And blood rushed to his eyes and there was blood splatter in the room and Al's body fell to the ground and he started convulsing and twitching and he would be dead within minutes. But Lucky wasn't done. He kept hitting and he kept screaming, get up, get up, motherfucker, get up. Dawn kneeled over Al's body. This is what she claimed. She took his stethoscope and tried to check for breathing, but she could only hear her own heartbeat. 
Now, this is where the two stories diverge. I know BJ and Erica flashbacks are strong, but uh, here we go. Don claims Lucky starts yelling at her. Get the fuck out. Just get away from me. Get the fuck out. She's like, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Fuck it. I don't care. Go make me some money. So she claims she went out and started working just like that. And she claims that Lucky handled Al's body, that he smoked a cigarette, eyeing Al, thinking about what to do next. And he thought, okay, I got to drag him to the bathroom. And Lucky allegedly lifted him in him to the tub, slit his throat. And he said, I cut his throat to try and get some of the blood out. I don't know why. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. So I left his body to drain in the house and I went to go pick up Don. So he claims they picked up some cocaine on their way home and they start planning out their next steps. He said, you know, he's dead. I would never have done this if Al was alive, but he's dead now, so he's got to go. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He can't stay here. There's an apartment building behind us. There's houses on the side of us. There's people moving 24 hours a day, so I had to do something. So first, I injected ourselves with cocaine for energy and then heroin to numb ourselves. So I had um, ran downstairs, grabbed a kitchen knife with a serrated edge, and Lucky started um, undressing Al and undressed himself until they were both naked in the tub. And Lucky's own skin would brush over and touch Al's cold flesh as he started working on decapitating and dismembering him. Dawn said that she went out to work that night while Lucky did all of this, but Lucky said, yeah, no, she didn't. She was sitting on the toilet seat helping me package up the body parts. So he started with the head, then Al's hands, then feet. The medical examiner said that the knife made such precise, clean cuts that they were able to fit the pieces of Al's body together like a puzzle. They wrapped Al's head and hands and feet in newspaper, folded the edges like a butcher shop, and um, the body parts, they were placed into various trash bags. The head, hands, and feet were left in a separate container. So um, they, they tried to get rid of all the evidence. So the knife, the clothes, the baseball bat, as well as Al's beloved coffee thermos. They even cut out parts of the carpeting that had blood stains on them. So, I mean, just leaving random squares of no carpeting randomly, that's, that's not suspicious at all. So they throw those into a bag. They place everything into the car and they start dumping slowly just across Detroit into different dumpsters. Later, the medical examiner had to find all of Al's body and piece it together. So now when they're just left with the head and the hands and the feet, they head on over to Cheryl and Frank's place. They had moved out at this point. I mean, they were sick of Lucky and Don's shenanigans. And they say, hey, we got to just go bury some incriminating evidence. You know, we're kind of on the run. Frank's like, what for? Oh, just nothing big. Don passed a bunch of bad checks and shit. How about we get this bag that I got in the trunk and we throw it in some quicksand? And Frank is laughing. He's like, quicksand? That's not going to work. Why don't we just bury it in the middle of the woods? I got a good place I know. It'll be easier that way. So the two guys, they leave Cheryl and they leave Don. They get in the car and they start heading to a part of the woods that Frank knows. And Lucky starts opening up. He's like, Frank, I killed somebody back in Detroit last night. And Frank's laughing like, okay, sure. No, I'm serious. I killed Al. I've got the identifiable parts in the back. Yeah, yeah, okay, baldy. So Lucky had shaven his head recently, so he's just making fun of him. They dig a three-foot hole, and Lucky throws in a satchel, to which he said, Bye, Al! And for some reason, Frank still doesn't believe it. It's not until they get home that Lucky runs up to Dawn and points his finger in her face and says, You know, you know what this means now. This is for life. And Frank said in that moment, he felt like he had been hit with a shovel. Lucky was serious. Oh my God, he just killed Al and he just helped bury the evidence. So he's like, what the fuck, Lucky? You didn't tell me. He's like, yes, I did. Look, I didn't want to kill him. He was our life support. He was giving me money. Why would I want to kill him? He pushed me over the edge and I went out, man. 
I panicked, so I cut him up in the bathtub. We buried his hands, feet, and his head. I just got rid of his other body parts. And it was self-defense, Frank. You got to believe me. The guy pushed me. Which, like, I don't know. Killing someone for pushing you, I don't think that's reasonable self-defense. Frank's mind was racing. He would, uh, like, how do you get out of this? How do you get out of this in a way that shows that you're not guilty? I mean, he just helped bury someone in the woods. So now the couple, they're just left with Al's car, his Buick. And Lucky calls up his friends. Hey, do you want to buy a Buick? It's pretty new for $100. They're like, no, $100 for a Buick? Either the car is stolen or worse. No, thank you. So Lucky told various friends, okay, well, you don't have to buy it. But by the way, remember that guy, the sugar daddy that I was bragging about for the last year and a half? Yeah, the one that gave us a ton of money. Well, he finally stood up for himself and I killed him and that's his car. I'm trying to get rid of the evidence right now. I'm glad that you didn't buy it, I guess. Also, if the police find out about this, I know it's you because you're the only person I told and I'll kill you. Have a nice Sunday. Lucky told at least like five people this, at least. So now that Lucky can't sell the car, he's like, okay, well, the next best thing is to strip it down and sell it for parts. So Lucky's trying to get every single dollar that he can out of Al's car, the person that he just murdered and dismembered. But Frank is not having it anymore. He said, okay, I will help you burn the car and that's it. So all of this is happening while Al Canty's disappearance starts circulating on the news. I mean, Jan was worried that night. It's already 1030. He was going to be home by six. She called the police. They checked his office. They checked the Kroger parking lot. None of it was making sense. I mean, since Al Canty was a well-respected figure in the community, his disappearance was all over the news. And remember Ray, Al's friend, who was told about the affair Well, he saw the disappearance of his friend, called the police, gave Don's name. The police searched Don's listed address and they broke in. Well, they checked the place. I guess it's not breaking in. And it was alarming in the sense that they found a bunch of blood in the bathroom and just squares of carpeting cut out of the room. So they're like, okay, yeah, we might be onto something. They start interviewing people in the neighborhood and a lot of them instantly fessed up and they're like, oh yeah, he tried to sell me a Buick. But then he told me that he killed him, the guy that's on the news. They're with this uh, couple, Frank and Cheryl, right now. So, yeah, the two, Lucky and Don, are promptly arrested. Frank cooperated, revealed the body's location, well, part of Al's body. And piece by piece, the police recovered Al's body across dumpsters all around Detroit, which was horrendous because each time that they found a body part, they had to bring in Jan to ID it. Like legs, arms, hands, everything. And not only that, Jan was distraught from the rumors that were taking front page. There were women coming forward to say that they had been sex workers that were hired by Al and he was this really wild person who who loved bondage and chained her to a wall with her arms spread and her legs spread apart. They said that Al liked Dawn because she would dress up like a little girl for him, implying that he had pedophilic fantasies, which I don't think these were true because he really never even had sex with Dawn and he was a very non-aggressive, not sexual person. Another claim was that he had AIDS and he was abusing drugs. Then other women started coming forward to say that they worked with Al for his project helping children with autism and he was weird. It seemed like Al had ulterior motives for that project. I mean, why were they getting paid to read fairy tales and skits while Al sat in his big chair and just listened to them? A lot of these women, they never saw a child, any child in his office or anywhere. And this woman, Jane, she opened up and said, one time Al tried to hypnotize me. A few of Al's female patients came forward to say, wait, he tried that on me too. Like it was weird. Well, Jane quit because one time she was reading a psychologist fairy tale and she looked over and Al had a boner. So she quit. 
And soon after, Jan, Jan was hired and the whole project was completed after they were married. So when Jan heard this, she did some investigating. Come to find out, Al's project sucked. I mean, his book was self-published and he claimed that his skits were 70% successful, but other psychiatrists pointed out if that were true, he would have won a Nobel Prize by now. Jan began to wonder, what was even the point of that? Was it to find someone young to marry? As a 40-year-old doctor, was this the best way? The most, quote, natural way? Jan didn't have answers. She didn't have closure. She had a confusing heartbreak. So, of course, she's grieving her husband, the man that she remembers. But she's also grieving the idea of him because maybe that's not who he really is. He had this whole double life and there were so many unanswered questions. I, I can't imagine losing a husband and then finding out there was so much he was keeping from you. So not only do you have grief, but you have anger and you have guilt at feeling angry because somebody's dead and somebody's been murdered, but you can't help but almost be mad at this person who's now gone. So Jan, she was so overwhelmed. She lost 25 pounds in a month. It was incredibly stressful. Jan Canty was a widow at 35 and she was lost. Later, she changed her name, remarried, adopted two kids and had a very successful career. So honestly, good for her. But she said she never got over it. She said, you don't get over it. It's like a cold for the most part. You move on with your life, but there are certain things that jar you back into it. Meanwhile, in prison, Dawn first wrote to Lucky All in Love. She said, please don't ever question my love for you. It's as deep as the ocean, as wide as the sea, and as high as the mountains. I do know you love me, and I thank God for you every night. As soon as possible, I want us to get married and have a baby. I love when people start writing um, in prison, and you're like, you are so out of touch with what's going on, aren't you? What do you mean have a baby? You, you're planning on getting out tomorrow? Like, that's not happening. So once Dawn realizes she can't cut a deal, she can't throw Lucky under the bus to get no jail time, she starts flipping a switch. She writes to Lucky, I'll tell you what the fuck my problem is. The real truth is I'm pissed at you for getting me into this. No, I shouldn't be in your shoes because it was your decision. Don't you remember? Don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming you. I just don't feel like you have the right to put me down. I'm trying to be strong, but it's very hard for me right now even though I'm only facing 15 years and you're facing life. Lucky pled to first-degree murder, and his court proceedings only lasted a few days. Dawn, she was 20 years old when she was tried, and I think it helped that she came from a middle-class background, and she was pretty young and white because she was found guilty of being an accessory to murder. So after the fact, she was found guilty of being an accessory to murder after the fact, and not guilty of the charge of mutilation of a dead body. At her sentencing, she said, I would like to say that I'm sorry to Dr. Canty's family and my family for all the pain that they've suffered, but I feel like I'm a victim too. I would greatly appreciate another chance to prove myself so that I can live in a society without getting in trouble. The judge sentenced her to three years with time served. Wow. She was halfway there. After her release, she did have to do like 100 hours of community service and a drug rehab. She also wrote to Lucky about how much she loved him and how she would visit him and help him when she gets out. But that was the last letter she ever wrote and she never did any of that. So, I mean, it's hard to say because I do know that Dawn is a victim under Lucky, but it's, you know, how many women out there have become victimized in this sense? And how many of them have participated in the dismemberment of another human being? Yeah, someone died. Yeah, like I, it, mm, yeah, it's, you can only have so much sympathy for Dawn in this situation. I couldn't find much information about what happened to Dawn after she got out, but it said that she's reportedly living a drug-free life, married and raising kids. And as for Lucky, he died at the young age of 50 in prison. Now, I mean, it's just overall a strange and heartbreaking story because you, you never really know what anyone's intentions are. 
I think it's really scary when you meet people that feel entitled to not just like your money, because obviously that's something everyone can agree, but even entitled to like your time, your energy, your emotions. And this is literally the extreme embodiment of that. So stay safe out there and I will see you guys on Sunday. Bye.